I'm home. Uh, I'm in. I'm in Austin for the moment, um, and I was. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. You know, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about how I'm going to be giving this keynote at this uh, NIST Cloud and Mobility Conference next week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be honest with you, since it's just the two of us, I feel like I can say this. Uh, right. I was super sweating it. Um, yeah. Mobile is I'm super comfortable talking about cloud, less comfortable talking about mobile, and even less comfortable talking about the intersection of mobile and cloud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a relatively smart guy, and I read the news and kind of keep up with the industry so I could talk with some expertise on it, but I was trying to figure out, like, a message that would be appropriate for the audience and kind of something new or, you know, something, I wanted something that was going to be unique, right? Because you want to you make, make an impression when you're talking in front of a, you know, distinguished group of uh, folks at NIST. Um, so I'm hitting here, I'm sitting here working on my ulcer and, uh, and then I got this glorious email from the organizers saying that the conference was postponed. It, you sound like the kid that was, that's like praying for a snow day. There's no school today. Yeah. There is no school today. I'm delighted. So you're like wearing your pajamas inside out and backwards and stuff. And yeah, that's not remarkable though. That's, that's just, that's, <laughs> that's how you do business. That's, yeah. what, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> how about you? What's going on? Did you see that viral video that's going around, the Bohemian Gravity? I I don't think I have. Yeah, so it's basically it's a master's degree student that um, in his spare time when he's not getting his master's degree in physics, he, he made this, uh, it's it's called Acapella Sciences, his channel. Mm-hmm. And he just did a thing called uh, Bohemian Gravity, which is a totally physics-oriented acapella version of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. <laughs> And it's it's like it's great, but Lauren just she keeps watching it over and over again. Like she'll she'll put the playlist on repeat and listen, do homework, and, and listen to it with her headphones just over and over. She just like loves it, like so a like great. a mantra. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I've been noticing that there's a lot of people getting compromised with Twitter. Have you have you noticed that? Like there's like a bunch of people are sending me direct messages with a link to click on something. I'm like, wait a minute, these po- people don't ordinarily send me. Direct messages with links without a whole lot of context. I also have noticed this. Uh, in fact, just this week, four people, all of them Red Hat employees um, with yeah. relatively inactive accounts, have sent me phishing attempts. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally noticed that. In fact, I report. I, I guess I, I don't think I formally. I, I told some. I told a friend who works at Twitter about it, but I, I haven't actually formally reported it. Have you? Um, I've been, I, well, that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to mark the person as spam. Yes. Right. Right. Um, so I, uh, so what I've been doing is I just reach out directly to the person and, and even, you know, mm-hmm. what's the etiquette there? Do you, if you get hacked, are you supposed to let everybody know, Hey, I got hacked. And, and it's like, you, it's embarrassing forever. Or do you just ignore it? Do you let it go? I know. I, I, don't I, know. I, I would, I would probably fix it, but not necessarily announce it unless I knew for a certain that, something that well let me think about that no i would yeah no i would probably tell because i would see in my account if i had sent direct messages to people right yeah and then do it one-on-one correct yeah that's probably how i would do it but what's it dave we've talked about this that especially in light of this uh i i kind of checked my belt and suspenders and made sure that i had two-factor authentication turned on on my uh, twitter account 
Yep. And as a public service announcement, well, I'll I'm going to put in the show notes the link to turn that on. I, I I've had it on since it came out, but mm-hmm. and I you know I don't think that it's first and last thing you should do. Well, maybe it's the first thing you should do, but it's definitely not the last thing you should do. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you should. I, you know, to me, it, it's like I'm not going to say, "Ha, these people are stupid because they don't have two-factor authentication on." Because you know, one of these days I'll get hacked and I'll look stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a matter of if, but when. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just you got to raise the castle walls high enough to make the other targets easier, I guess. And that's right. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think How well, it's uh, well, it's a good opportunity. Yes, of course, using two-factor. Um, but this is also a good opportunity to go through the list of applications that you've authorized. Uh, yes. So in your Twitter account, you can go through in the settings and uh, mm-hmm. see the list of all the mobile apps that you've used that wanted to access Twitter, all the websites, all the applications on your computer. Um, and you might want to do some weeding on that list uh, because the more tokens that are out there, the more likely it is that uh, that someone's gonna gonna take advantage of that authorization to to hack your account. Yeah, and that's right. And and the thing is too is that you may turn on two factor authentication now, but maybe you already have an app that has been authorized and either that app gets compromised or um, you've been somehow you've been compromised already. So going in and, and sort of making sure that everything's safe once you raise the, the shields inside is a good idea. Correct. Yep. Yeah. It's just good hygiene. Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of hygiene, Dave. Yeah. Um, what's going on for the show this week? So... A lot of things that involve the letter P. Nice. Another alliterative list. We love this. Yeah. So we got uh, pudding in airplanes, penguins in space, Parkinson's and chickens, uh, printing in 3D, and IMAP. <laughs> waka waka. Yeah. So if folks want to, uh, if folks want to see the link to uh, to the better Twitter security measures, uh, where do they go for something like that? They need to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Where they will also find an extraordinarily good cutting room floor this week. Uh, it's a cutting room floor celebrity edition. Yeah, yeah. Lily Collins, and uh, you know, she has been declared the most dangerous celebrity. Um, Ernest Hemingway's favorite hamburger and uh, Stevie Wonder's superstitions about uh, Muppets. Love it. I love it. That's that uh, that Stevie Wonder video is so good. Oh, it's yeah, that's great. It's I I listen to that while Lauren listens to uh, <laughs> the Bohemian, Bohemian Gravity. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So what's up? What's new with Matt Mycini this week? That's what I want to know. Yeah, yeah. So he's um, he sent us something from the uh, a blog post from the Wall Street Journal. This is pretty interesting. Uh, it, it, at first, it was like, well, what's a big deal? But you and I started talking about it, and it's like, oh yeah, there is something to talk about with this, and. Basically, the there is um, a court rules a Facebook like as protected speech by the First Amendment. Um, so what what happened was, uh, I guess there was a former deputy sheriff in Hampton, Virginia, who was fired for liking a Facebook page of of a man that was running against his boss for city sheriff. And um, so that guy got fired, um, went to court. Guy lost the court case because it, um, uh, the the uh, Supreme or the let's see the appeals court judge uh, threw it out saying that a Facebook like was insufficient to merit constitutional protection. Hmm. And so and so this is one of the this is one of the this is this was one of the things we we wanted to talk about was that there is apparently a list of speech 
that is insufficient, which I guess means too short or not meaningful enough to actually be constitutionally protected. Or is it, does it have to be like, is it like, what is a like, is a like speech? You know, is it, is it a, or is it like, like you were saying earlier, is it a gesture and are gestures uh, protected as speech? Right. And, and as a constitutional law lawyer, uh, lawyer, as we all are, as yeah. we all are, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it just seemed obvious that anything that could come out of my mouth or kind of any expression of opinion would be protected. Yes. At least I would yeah. hope so. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, cause like you and I first read the article and we thought that, Oh, well, you know, somebody says something on Facebook or Twitter that should be considered protected speech. You know, it's like, well, that's not a story. Right. Mm-hmm. But is alike, you know, and I guess it's also the difference between uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and and a lot of times people make a distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, see, I was going to take it in another direction. Is I'm confused that this became a constitutional issue in the first place because just because I liked something on a Facebook page doesn't seem like it should be grounds for firing me. Right. That's right. it. Like that's already overboard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you need something a little more than that. A little I more think. substantive, I would think. And the fact that this guy had to fall all the way back to the First Amendment in order to keep his job, or yeah, is, that, is that all you got? Is right. That, right, right. That seemed that seemed really strange to me. It made me realize that I know approximately nothing about how the Constitution works. Yep. Yeah, we should we should uh, consult a lawyer. We should. I should. You know what? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to do some research. I know. Actually, I know some real life constitutional lawyers. I'm gonna I'm gonna call them up and see what the score is they can they yeah. can hopefully sort it out for me um and then we get this other item from from our uh, our friend and colleague mark bohannon so dave uh when you are organizing an asteroid mining operation what's your operating mm-hmm. system of choice oh i everything the whole stack is open source really yes uh tell me is it, and is that important to you in your asteroid mining do you feel like uh do you feel like uh, open source is is an essential component to your asteroid mining operation yeah, absolutely. In the past, whenever I did asteroid mining uh, with proprietary systems, I just always felt really confined and you know locked in by the vendor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, which operating system are, are you using? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, I insist on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Attaboy. Yeah, with Attaboy. the, the real time uh, option on it. So, so actually, tell me about this because uh, you know we've been selling this product for four or five years, um, and uh, so exp- explain to me like I'm five what real time is and how it solves the problem of determinism. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it's actually, um, yeah. So, in that particular context, um, there are a lot of applications where the right answer at the wrong time is wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, if I'm launching a missile or I'm doing a stock trade, um, if the timing is wrong, uh, bad things can happen. I could lose lives, millions of dollars, things like that. 23. Right. 45. 68. And so the thing there is being able to have low latency, meaning that by the time I I push the button to launch a missile and to have the missile launch, you you want that to be very, you don't want something else to, you know, you don't want to be re-indexing your man pages. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the past, whenever people would do real-time systems, uh, they would have, typically the only option would be like a proprietary solution. So, um, which were very expensive. And and the reason why they were so expensive is that the addressable market was pretty small. 
so they had to recoup their costs over over a smaller adjustable market. But now that if you use something like Linux with the real-time extensions in in the kernel, um, you're able to take advantage of that broad base to really drive down the cost of what a solution would be. And so the the article that we saw was um, uh, there's a startup that is looking to do asteroid mining, and they're talking about well now it's really it, it seems really feasible to use uh, open source stacks and commodity hardware um, instead of using the proprietary stuff in the past in order to do um, uh, asteroid mining. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Every day we find a new use for Linux. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. It's in airplanes. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yep. And speaking of airplanes, you like the segue? Speaking of mm-hmm. airplanes, um, you found this article about uh, an engineer who was able to who was able to an engineer who was able to abscond with one point two five with yeah one point two five million airline miles mm-hmm. simply by buying two thousand two hundred dollars worth of pudding. Yeah, and actually he bought it was actually three thousand dollars worth of pudding. And and so there was this promotion. So basically what would happen is that okay, well if you go to the store, you buy this pudding, you could turn it in for some airline miles. And and there was also a there was also a like this time offer that's like, oh, if you do it in this first month or whatever, we'll actually give you more miles. So it's like, he's like, well, I'm going to turn up the gas and I'm, I'm going to do this. So he ended up buying uh, $3,000 worth of pudding. Um, and and the thing he had to do was cut out the box top or whatever and then mail it in with the rebate forms or whatever to get the um, to get the, the mileage. But then he was realizing he, he wasn't going to hit the... Um, he wasn't going to hit the uh, his uh, that that deadline to get the bonus miles, so he took it to a food pantry and said that, "Look, you help me cut off the the UPC symbols from these, and mm-hmm. and uh, I will donate the pudding to you." And they're like, <laughs> "Cool, let's do it." So he took the the three thousand dollars worth of pudding um, to the food bank. Um, they all cut them out and everything. He donated it to the the food bank. Declared an eight hundred dollar. He got a basically an eight hundred dollar tax deduction for the charitable contribution, and then turned that into one point two five million airline miles. That is extraordinary. So this reminds me of the movie Punch Drunk Love. Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. Also by P.T. Anderson, who directed There Will Be Blood, uh, which I uh, endorsed in a previous episode. Uh, wonderful romantic kind of dramedy uh, starring Adam Sandler, um, incredibly enough. But despite that, you should still go and see it. Um, anyway, this is, anyway, this is literally the, the premise of the film, is that this very lonely guy spends thousands of dollars and tons of time buying pudding for the purpose of getting airline miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of life-imitating art. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, you know what? I'm going to include also in the show notes, I'm going to include a link to uh, the Barry and Levon sketch from the state, um, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've ever seen. It was on MTV years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, these two lounge lizards buy $240 for the pudding. Hilarity ensues. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, nice. Yeah. So did you get your uh, you get your iPhone yet? Nope. 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 No, you, you don't have uh, you know, I wasn't going to get one, but now I'm intrigued after having read this Gizmodo, uh, write up on the architecture. Um, okay. and I'm not like a chip guy. I don't care about speeds and feeds and that and stuff like that. It just bores me to tears most of the time. But this write up was really interesting. Um, so the, the iPhone actually has two chips in it, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, one is the A7, which is like the CPU proper. And then there's a second processor in it. I think it's called mm -hmm. the M7. Um, and this second processor is super low power and is meant to be, I guess the best way to describe it is like, uh, do all the passive work. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it can monitor stuff like the accelerometer, the gyroscope, um, it can, you know, handle the radios, things like that. So, uh, freeing up the, the big chip, which is the one that draws all the power. Mm -hmm. Um, it can actually power that down completely. Oh, um, that's nice. It's a, yeah, which is really cool. So it's like good for battery life and all that other stuff, but also it makes the iPhone really useful for like passive data collection. Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting and terrifying, right? So you can actually imagine how the iPhone, it's got an accelerometer. I mean, it's got, what, 11 sensors in it? It's got two cameras, microphones, speakers, all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. With this passive kind of work the chip can do, um, you can do things like turn the iPhone into a Fitbit, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And like collect data on your activity. Um, anyway, I just thought it was so interesting. And, uh, and one of the points of the article is that when you look at the specs for the phone, it's actually not that interesting. Right. Um, but when these two chips kind of work together, um, they're much more powerful than, than any one of them individually, I think basically mm -hmm. was the, was the point. Um, and it got me thinking about this, you know, when I, you know, in my career in it coming up, it was relatively easy to know where you, to know where you stood performance wise, right? If I had a certain kind of CPU at a certain, you know, frequency, certain gigahertz, um, or megahertz back in the day, mm -hmm. um, then I was doing, you know, then I knew where I, I knew how things were going. Um, but it seems like that's starting to fall apart as we get more clever about using the space that we've got and about using the, the tools that we have. Um, so as an, this is a good example of that, right? Um, take two super low power chips or, you know, relatively low power chips and combine them in an interesting way to get way a better performance than you would, um, uh, with a, you know, rather than trying to shove a five gigahertz chip in there or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that people are going to have to be doing stuff like that, because um, especially in the mobile sense that, uh, you know, the chips, it's going to be great that they're going to get faster and faster, but they're going to draw more power. The battery is going to die sooner. So you, you almost need this sensor coprocessor um, mm -hmm. to relieve the, the CPU uh, to not really worry about that. Like, I mean, how many times have it's like I know on my phone, the, the GPS, it's like if I use the GPS, it just smokes a battery. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder if with the new iPhone, if, you know, things like that will make the battery last longer um, because it mm -hmm. doesn't have to, you know, constantly pull or be spun up all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it got me thinking, too, about, you know, how fond I am of the of the story about the V24 Liberator, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how they were, by making the production process more predictable, they were able to be, you know, turn out more bombers in a certain amount of time. And one of the morals of that story is agility and flexibility being a virtue in itself right mm -hmm. um you know back in uh, back after world war ii you know the air force was buying uh bigger planes that went farther and moved faster and could carry more weapons um mm -hmm. and they were getting outperformed by smaller really kind of on paper less capable um but more maneuverable airplanes um and so, you know, the Soviet MiGs were out, actually outperforming the American planes, which actually looked better on paper. Anyway, it got me thinking about this this idea of, um, you're familiar with like, well, you're an MBA, right? You, elastic mm -hmm. demand curves, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, in other words, like, uh, no matter how big a bucket you make, somebody will fill it, right? Yes. Um, so no matter how much power you put on a chip, somebody will figure out how to use it. 
Um, and this, this idea of, it, it got, it's gotten me thinking and it's not a complete thought, but I thought I would just get it out there and see what you had to, had to say about it. This notion of, um, agility or being kind of more adaptable, right? Um, mm-hmm. and this a seven versus like M seven or this passive chip idea is a good example of it, right? Taking what you've got and putting it together in a more flexible way, right? A more clever way. So I can, you know, move the work from this M seven chip to the a seven chip and then back again, um, being more agile about it means I can actually get more out of what I've got. Um, and how that, and anyway, keeping that in, in one thought. And then in the second thought thinking like this elastic demand curve has served us pretty well, but now that we're hitting, like you say, you know, the upper limits of physics, Mm -hmm. um, like eventually that (laughs) the elasticity goes away. Right. Um, and you know, we hit this hard limit. And so now we're actually forced to be more agile, more flexible and kind of, more clever about how we put all these pieces together. Is mm-hmm. that is that making sense? Yeah, yeah. And and not only is it like how fast is fast enough to mm-hmm. for a telephone, or or like how how much resolution do you really need on your cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. That for you to fit into five inches diagonal, um, you know, is it eventually you're going to it just like uh, people looking for things like oh let's do three D TVs because we sort of you know or let's do four K or something as a way to to innovate. Maybe in ways that people don't want, but I think that this is really useful. A worry that I have, though, is that I'm sure there are patents out the wazoo for a lot of this stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's it, I, I have a feeling that it's like that's going to just be lawsuit bait if anybody tries to do something similar. Or yeah. I, I, I don't know. Especially in the mobile world, it seems like it's so many patents going on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I recently I had reason to go back and um, actually in preparation for this NIST talk, which I'm not giving. Um, I, uh, I looked, I went back and watched the unveiling of the iPhone. Um, Mm -hmm. and just, and we've talked about this before, just as a piece of showmanship, it's amazing, um, to watch Steve jobs just sell this iPhone. Um, just the, the reveal is incredible. The way he delivers the product features and functions is amazing. I mean, just looking at it as a salesperson, it's, it's a really impressive, but one of the punchlines of the presentation is, you know, it goes through these bullets on what's amazing about the iPhone. And like the last bullet is you better believe we've patented the heck out of this thing. <sighs> and like everybody in the audience is like, ha 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 ha. And it's like, okay, well now fast forward seven years. And you know, now you know, billions of dollars are being uh, passed around from company to company because of this nightmare of, of this, just this thicket of, of patent violations. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, well, the, the other interesting part about though is, you know, we, we would say we would talk about software patents, um, where the mm-hmm. and that you know, well, we don't like software patents because you can't implement it in the device where this is actually embodied in a physical device. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. And well, and oh, here's an interesting thought um, for me, and so I'll say it <laughs> that the as we hit this upper limit of what the chips can do we have to get more clever with how those chips are used, right? Mm-hmm. Getting more clever with how the chips are used is necessary, is necessarily, is absolutely necessary in order to like advance the industry and kind of advance the state of the art. Um, but the patents on that more clever use of the existing piece parts mm-hmm. are going to slow that down. Mm-hmm. And so in one sense, you know, I think about like uh, AMD, creating, you know, supporting x86 instruction sets and allowing them to compete with Intel, right? That's a, that's an example of the market working, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, 
this is an example of competition where there's really no good way to do competition because the moment an innovation appears, it's already encumbered and, mm-hmm. and somebody's got a lock on it, right? So if Apple is the only company that can do this, uh, this clever passing of work between, between one chip and another, um, like what could any other phone maker possibly hope to do, right? That seems like a... It seems yeah. like a pretty basic function to need to perform once you've maxed out on your on your chip speed. Yeah. Um, so then then you need to either license it, violate the patent, or run the clock out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and running the clock out is absurd because the clock doesn't run out for. Um, you're out of business. Yeah. You're out of business, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, huh. Interesting. See, I knew there was something interesting to talk about in that article. Anyway, this article is great. Um, uh, again, as not a chip nerd, not a hardware nerd, uh, still a really interesting read. Um, so go check it out. Nice. Yep. Speaking of sensors, yes. um, tell me about Parkinson's and chickens. Yeah. So um, there was an article I saw that um, there's this company, they made this, you know, one one of the problems with Parkinson's disease is that you, you lose control of your motor skills, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the, the shaking hand or the, mm-hmm. you know, and, and things like that, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. And so there's a company that came out with this um, – eating utensil that it almost looks like an electric toothbrush okay but instead of it you know just vibrating to brush your teeth it will detect how you're orienting the toothbrush and then com- or not the toothbrush but the 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 eating utensil and it will compensate um to allow you to um to actually eat without having the food spill all over you um so um you know, so there, there, it's pretty cool. You can see like videos where of, of people eating and their hands are shaking and um, with with like a normal f- fork or spoon, and mm-hmm. it's just it's just impossible um, and embarrassing, and it's you know it's it's just really hard on people. And mm-hmm. and then they start using the spoon and they're eating soup, and it's like not really splashing everywhere, and everything's so is pretty cool. And is it is it like a is it like a comically large and complicated like a Terry Gilliam spoon or? Mm-mm. Kind of help help me help me visualize what this spoon looks like. Is it just like a normal spoon with a cable hanging out the other end? Or? No cables. It it looks like an electric like an electric toothbrush um, huh. mm-hmm. that where the battery and and the sensors and all that are where you're holding it in your hand. So you're covering it up with your hand, so it doesn't mm-hmm. look like crazy. Mm-hmm. And then there's just like attachments. So instead of plugging on the the toothbrushes, you plug on. Oh, I want a fork. I want a I want a spoon, and right. you can plug them in, and then oh, you cool. take it home and charge it up. Oh, really neat. Mm-hmm. So what it did was it, it, you know, when I saw this about how, like, you move your hand in one direction and then the spoon will compensate in the other direction to keep the food from falling off, that reminded me of, of uh, how, like, chickens do head tracking using the vestibulo-ocular reflex, of course, right? Right, right. I was just going to say. Yeah. The, 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 the VOR. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's where, and and you could do this yourself. Like you know, it's like you could look at your phone or or your your monitor, and as you know, focus on a certain point. And as you move your, as as you move your head from side to side and focus on that point, your eyes will will reorient and and adjust um, and allow you to you know be able to keep reading uh, or looking at whatever you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a couple interesting videos um, I'll put in the show notes that where um, some guys uh, a guy did this with a, a chicken. Um, and even Mercedes, uh, Mercedes Benz did this with uh, a car commercial. Uh, so basically, he's you know like you can hold a chicken, and then get the chicken looking at the video camera, and then he moves the body of the chicken, but the head stays in place. <laughs> and it's really it's fascinating uh, to me. Um, huh. And 
and so what the same guy did was he he actually made a chicken powered steady cam. So that, basically, I, that's it. That's that now it seems totally obvious. I was just going to say steady cam. Yeah, right. That's really cool. Right, right. So why waste money on like a you know, a professional grade steady cam when you could just use like a chicken with a camera mm-hmm. on its head, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so he did a video of of that where it's like as as you move the ch- the the chicken's body around that the camera on the top of the chicken's head stays steady and you could see the output of the camera and it all holds still. So you know, I thought that was pretty cool and it and actually the whole thing with Parkinson's disease reminded me of back when I was at SGI and you know, just working every day with uh literally mad scientists right that are doing like crazy research and stuff and one of the things that uh one of the companies i work with uh locally around here was the cleveland clinic um Mm -hmm. and they they did a thing called uh deep brain stimulation where they they actually put electrodes inside the brain of a person with parkinson's disease and based and and it would have sensors in it and everything and based upon how much they are shaking um, you could basically dial it up or dial it down, and and it will actually create electrical impulses in the person's brain and stimulate it, and um, and and that stimulation will. You would think that it would it would make the person convulse more, mm-hmm. but it would actually. It's almost like canceling out like a sine wave, and and it'll. Mm-hmm. It's like noise cancellation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where it it would cancel that out. And um, it was really cool, just you know, you know, doing work with those guys. And you know, the, to me, it's like as a uh, an SE a systems engineer at SGI or an SA at, at Red Hat, going in visiting with customers that are doing really cool stuff with the with the things you're doing. It's really cool. Um, see, see, I thought you were going in a different direction with that. I thought you were going to volunteer some customers for deep brain stimulation. Yeah, I I, I know a couple people that. Uh, well, yeah, I'm not. Gonna, yeah, never mind. <laughs> Um, that is really cool. Now you described it as like canceling out a sine wave or, or mm-hmm. noise cancellation, but um, is it is it that or is it that Parkinson's it, Parkinson's is is the lack of impulse control or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, is it um, are you they're not actually canceling brain waves or, or or interfering with the or canceling out electrical impulses are they that seems like really detailed work that that we wouldn't be able to do yet yeah and this was years ago and mm-hmm. and um I'm more of a constitutional lawyer than I am a a, a brain mm-hmm. surgeon yeah. Yeah. but um i i think it's more like it's like this mental storm mm-hmm. you know like this electrical storm in your brain Mm-hmm. Um, that that goes on, uh, and and so by using the the deep brain stimulation, um, it it will actually add add canceling stimulation to to just cancel that out. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And and so what they did on the SGI systems was they used a, an open source piece of software called Ski Run or SCI. R-U-N, um, mm-hmm. for its scientific visualization stuff. So it was pretty cool. It's, it's almost, think of it like uh, Scratch, where you where you have the visual programming and the little modules and you glue them together, but and but it's uh, it's all for scientific visualization. So you could you could pull in these big data sets and then send them through uh, image transforms and and you know data transforms and then do the 3D visualization coming out the other end. So it's pretty cool. That's really neat. That's really neat. I, I, you know, I'm always suspicious of these 3D visualizations, especially when it comes to like biology. Um, it always seems more like theater than it does like a diagnostic tool. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it, it's really neat to think about. You know, what we would be able to do. You know, once we get 
or I guess we already have it, right? Um, real visualizations of what is going on inside the brain. Um, mm-hmm. Like Iron Man 3, right? <laughs> you know, the, the mad scientist uh, gets that huge hologram of, 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 of his brain and he's kind of walking around in it and pointing at stuff. Um, I'm just imagining all the things we could do with that. Um, yeah. Well, I, the, the, well, the other thing that I did too was um, before I was at SGI, when I, I worked for a government contractor, we actually worked with the University of Pittsburgh um, where there, we were working with... Um, uh, them to help disabled people. So they actually, University of Pittsburgh developed a, an electric wheelchair, you know, that somebody could drive around. But the problem is, is that you may have people with disabilities and um, where they, they don't have that fine motor control. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was that they developed um, sensors all around the wheelchair that would detect that it's like, oh, you're, you're reaching the top of a stairwell and you don't want to fall down the stairwell or you're, you know, it's like, the person goes full throttle, and then the the, they, the sensors can detect that they're getting closer to uh, a wall. And what it'll do is it'll actually uh, put the brakes on, and and hmm. prevent the person from from doing it. And the thought was, well, okay, how are we going to do the? How are we going to test uh, this with that with actual test patients? You know, like you don't want to get somebody with. Um, motor control problems, put them in like a beta of the wheelchair you're designing and, and you know, cut them loose and then they end up hurting themselves. So and chickens. So, so chickens. Use chickens. No, we actually use virtual reality. Um, oh, so, cool. Yeah. So we, we got one of these wheelchairs. We got a head-mounted display. And you could put the head-mounted display on. You have this virtual environment that we, we would, um, we basically were able to intercept the input from the joystick of the wheelchair to pump that into the virtual reality environment to allow people to navigate through the environment. They wear a head-mounted display, and then they could see that, oh, well, here's an obstacle or here's, you know, here's a, some, uh, you know, I could fall down a stairwell or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, able to, uh, we were able to do all that using virtual reality. And the even cooler part on top of that was that um, one of the people, and we didn't know this at the time, that one of the developers on the team was actually physically handicapped. And... Huh. You know, to the point where it's like he he couldn't like talk on the phone. You know, like he couldn't verbalize things just because his motor control was was really you know he's having really big challenges here. Mm-hmm. And but one of the guys that was on my team that was doing the development, his only interaction with him was like, oh, here's some code, here's some code. They're going back and forth and everything. It was all through email, and he didn't know until like weeks into it that oh my gosh, this guy is, you know, it's like he's disabled. But you wouldn't you wouldn't have known it. Yeah. Um, which to me was like awesome, right? Yeah, it, it's yeah. like you. It, I thought it was. It was that whole experience was just like great. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And now, were you doing this as you were doing this as an SGI employee or as one nope. of the researchers? This was this is when I was a uh, working for a government contractor, and, oh, and I yeah, I, I ran a virtual reality lab, um, and uh, so that was fun. Um, you know, we had a cave and virtual workbenches and 3d glasses and all kind of stuff like that back in the 90s wow that's that's really cool so is there anything you you miss about i mean i'm sure you're seeing you know uh, the vr like you know the uh, what is it oculus rift and 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 the rest of it i mean there's all these new tools coming out um which must just make you drool at this point like having worked in the industry um you ever you ever been tempted to go back and 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 try your hand at, uh, at vr again um i the funny thing is that i am so desensitized like and I'm such a snob when you know it's like oh HD TV came out and I'm like 
you know, no, no big deal. Right. <laughs> um, and it, it was like, I was just like ruined. Like I, I had, uh, like at SGI, we had, I had one system that drove 34 displays. Yikes. So one X server running 34 displays. Once you do stuff like that, it's like, oh, we're doing 720p. And it's like, <laughs> I, I was just like, eh, you know, whatever. That's adorable. It took, yeah, it, it took me forever to get an HDTV. Um, and, and, and even the funny thing, too, is like, oh, 3D uh, TVs coming out. I, I, want, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Because um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it was only going to disappoint? Yeah. 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 It's like shutter glasses? No. Polarized glasses? No. Um, I'm not going to wear that thing. You know, and, and it was just, yeah. Huh. So. Let's go. Well, now, one thing that is different, or maybe, yeah, one thing, that the, one area of innovation, um, I guess, since you've worked in the field, is not just, you know, the kind of marginal improvements in, like, the quality of the visualization or the sensors or, uh, uh, or the software, right? Um, is in the tools that actually create some of these worlds, right? The, the mm-hmm. tools to do the modeling have, have gotten a lot easier. Um, I saw that this news from GitHub yeah. uh, blew me away, right? Um, that, that they're now, if you take a 3D model and put it on a, in a GitHub repo, um, mm-hmm. it will actually present to you a visualization of that model um, as you're browsing through the code. Yeah, and it's it's what like HTML5, and it's like you don't need mm-hmm. like a flash plugin or anything. <laughs> right, like that, right. You know? So cool, totally crazy. Um, and of course, they're I, I think they did it because they're thinking about using making sure that GitHub is the re- repo of choice uh, for three D three D printing projects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember just a, I guess it was about a year ago I was working on the DARPA Vehicle Forge project, mm-hmm. um, and in that project. They wanted to do a competition, um, so a bunch of teams get together and uh, try and build basically an, an open source car or an open source Jeep. Mm-hmm. And the idea was you would have a bunch of teams um, working with interchangeable parts that didn't exist in the real world. All you had was their models and simulation data and uh, and stuff like that, and being able to. Um, being able to basically take these software pieces of Lego off the shelf and put them together and then hand it over to another team. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one team should be able to submit uh, kind of a patch on your hardware design back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a really important part of that is being able to see the assemble, see the assemblies and see the, like the fully formed vehicle um, actually to visualize that. Right. And so I get super excited when I saw this GitHub feature um, cause it's a, uh, it's kind of a first step towards that, towards that same thing we were working on, uh, on that DARPA project. It's really cool. Yeah. And, and like in the, in the GitHub page, you could actually look at a model <coughs> and then there's a slider where, where you can drag it and you could see the different, um, you could see the, the, you know, the different revisions as you go through time. So that, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. yeah. So instead of like, it's like a visual diff of, of seeing this thing being built. Mm-hmm. So cool. That's great. That's really great. Um, you know who's not doing great right now? Blackberry. Blackberry. Man. Yeah. Those guys. <laughs> Poor Blackberry. I feel bad for him now. Yep. I just straight up feel bad for him. Um, so they're done, right? They're, they're, they've gone private, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, they got sold. For how much? Five billion. <laughs> Which seems like a comically small amount of money for the number of Blackberries that are floating around in the world right now. Yep. Um, yeah, you remember? Do, what, do you remember your first BlackBerry? Never had one. No, really. I had a Trio. 
Mm. I, I went from the uh, you know the Motorola uh, flip phone to uh, mm-hmm. right to the Trio with uh, with uh, it had the good sync and all that. Yeah. All right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I had uh, I remember I had the the pager right uh, with the like the flip pager so. It would buzz, and then you'd lift, you'd lift the lid on it, and mm-hmm. the the top of the lid was this like crude four line LCD display, mm. um, and then like a full a very heavy like full keyboard mm-hmm. or thumb keyboard on the on the bottom half. Um, God, I remember that. I remember I probably had four or five Blackberries in my life, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was so strange. I remember it was like push email. It was like magic mm-hmm. on the Blackberry. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, crazy proprietary and, again, patented, right? Like, mm-hmm. super patented. Um, and, and it didn't seem like anybody ever had a hope of getting push email unless you had a, a BlackBerry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing how, that's, how that stuff changes so quickly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so there was one, there was, and I'll put it in the show notes, there was a... Uh, it, it was called the uh, decline of BlackBerry in one chart, and it shows over time how like BlackBerry dominated, and then you you could see the um, the rise of iOS and Android, and and how that just really um, uh, imbalanced. But you know, it's and then also Windows Phone was on there too. Um, but it it just showed how like the mm-hmm. phones with open source foundations ended up dominating. And why is it so? So muse on this a little bit for me. Like, why do you think? Because it's true that the more open platforms, I think, even you know, iPhone gets dinged as being like a closed platform, which it is in a bunch of ways. But it's definitely more open than BlackBerry ever was, mm-hmm. um, or you know, or anything else before it. Um, so it's obvious that like the op- more open or like more available platforms are the ones that are more successful. Why do you why do you think that is? Well, I I think that. So there, there are different parts of how you would classify open, whether in iOS or Android, because there, there are a lot on both of those platforms. There are a lot of, you know, proprietary uh, things that, you know, you, you can't get to as much. But mm-hmm. uh, the way I look at it is, um, you know, with whether it's iOS, which is based upon uh, BSD, or um, Android, which is based on Linux, Google and Apple didn't have to write all that code. Um, just mm-hmm. like Red Hat didn't have to write all of Linux, you know, we all worked mm-hmm. together and we we pulled our resources. We innovated where it made sense for the markets that we wanted to go after, but we mm-hmm. didn't have to do everything from scratch. And it, I, to me, it goes back to that um, nobody's smarter than everybody sort of thing, mm-hmm. where it's right. like if if you have a proprietary implementation, it's going to be a matter of time until it just it's going to get commoditized by an open source alternative. Um, yeah. Unless you use patents or you know, you know protocols or something like that to keep people out, right? Which well, which is what BlackBerry tried to do, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they had this, uh, they had their own proprietary push technology, which meant that the email had to go to their servers first and then down to yours and what? And and, and that leads me. At, I have a similar set of reasons why I think the open, more open platforms won. But I think, but I'm going to invert your point, which is that. I think that on these closed platforms, they become so precious about their own intellectual property and mm-hmm. their own implementations that it be, they become more reluctant and less likely to take advantage of work that other people have already done. Yep. So, I mean, I just remember when I first got my BlackBerry and I tried to configure like 
an IMAP server, like just real basic, like just get it to connect to someone else's IMAP server that didn't come from BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. And it was a total nightmare. And I had this like hugely degraded experience. Mm-hmm. Right? That meant that BlackBerry, if I was inside the BlackBerry world, I was great. But as soon as I wanted to do anything outside of it, I was at a disadvantage. And since BlackBerry, as powerful as they were, were 10%, you know, of, or, or, you know, some, there was no way that BlackBerry had enough gravity, if you like, um, to make me want to move everybody into the BlackBerry world. Mm-hmm. It was much more likely that I was going to leave the BlackBerry world and go find another experience that worked with everyone else more, uh, more easily. Um, well, let me ask you there, like to mm-hmm. me, is, aren't we seeing the same thing with social media? Like for instance, Tell me more. so Twitter, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter is sort of like BlackBerry was right where mm-hmm. they're dominant. I'm not, I can't, be on Google Plus and post on to Twitter and mm-hmm. get replies back and all that. It's mm-hmm. so if Twitter is number one, companies two through N should be working together to do a standard, an open standard to be able to share things. Um, yes. And to me, I think that would make it much more useful. Like I don't, I don't use Google Plus that much at all mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's like. I'm kind of using Twitter, just like you know you were using BlackBerry because you were living in that world, and it was just less friction to use something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I think Google Plus would be much more useful if it, you know, worked with other social media um, mm-hmm. tools. And and to me, it's like I, I don't know why they're not doing that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's exactly right. Like Twitter, and especially as Twitter started very open. Mm-hmm. And then has proceeded to get more and more closed, right? Uh, becoming more hostile to develop. We've talked about this on previous shows, but the uh, Twitter has become more closed um, because now they feel as though their market position is relatively assured, mm-hmm. um, and so they have, you know, however many million people signed up, um, they basically have that many prisoners, right? And right. So, they, so they started constructing a wall around them and then charging people money for access to those prisoners, right? Yeah. Um, a sound business model for a certain amount of time. Um, but you're right. If someone else, uh, uh, eventually starts competing with them that is more open or more interoperable with other people, it just, it seems natural that, um, that, uh, that people are going to gravitate towards it. I mean, I know I can, you know, I'm a geek and, um, I've got a, all this like open bag, you know, this capital O open baggage, um, uh, with me, but, uh, I know when Google Plus started, I was like really hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. Because here was the here was a huge company who had the ability to create a large enough center of gravity, right? These are the folks who could actually take a social media operation and get it to a tipping point where it would be sustaining, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when they launched, uh, it was closed. It was relatively closed. Like it's 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 pretty easy to put stuff into Google plus it is impossible to get stuff out right Google plus doesn't support RSS feeds um, Google plus doesn't interact in a real meaningful way with email um, all the things that you see other folks doing like Tumblr and, and even Twitter in some senses of making it easy to both post stuff and then go take a post and go share it with other people um, all that stuff is locked up um, and so whatever benefit they had of being Google and having, you know, hundreds of millions of, of incumbent users, um, they've squandered away because there's no way to, because the system isn't permeable, right? Because the walls between the system and the outside world aren't permeable. Um, there's no way for me to, to go like, I don't I actually don't care 
that a hundred million people have accounts in there because it's super hard to get stuff in and even harder to get stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, so the system is basically irrelevant to me, right? Right. Even um, th- even though it, in many ways, it's better than Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of there's stuff. I mean, it's got really nice features. It's got search. It's like integrated with my contacts, and I mean, the, you know, I, like I know exactly what was on the PowerPoint when they pitched Google Plus, right? <laughs> it's, I'm like, I know what the benefits are, um, but because the system isn't open enough. Um, it actually discourages me from using it. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I have a post in there, if you post something and it's interesting and I want to share it with somebody, um, basically the only way I can get it out is by figuring out what the URL is, copying and pasting it into an email, or uh, or clicking quote unquote share, um, which means go share it with somebody else inside Google Plus. Right. Like if I want to take a Google Plus thing and send it to uh, and post it on Twitter, that's mm-hmm. not easy. They don't make that obvious. It, I, I don't know. It just boggles my mind. I don't understand why they don't. I don't understand why the system is not more open because they're only doing themselves a disservice. As far as yeah. I know. Well, you can, I think with Google plus, like if you could share a post with somebody, like you plug in their email address and if they don't have a Google plus account, it would just send it as an email. Right. But in the interface, you don't actually know. It's not, at least when I last tried this again, actually proving my point, like I haven't actually tried to do this in, mm-hmm. in months and months and months. Um, but I never know whether if somebody's going to get like an email email or whether they're going to get some kind of pitch from Google to go join Google plus so that they can go look at the post. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause Google's like, inter- they've intermediated that or they're interfering with the transaction. Right. Um, it should be, there's there's no reason for Google to be sitting in between that transaction. Right? I should be right. able to send it to whoever I want. Right? But, and and the funny thing is, back in the day, and they still have this, is that like Gmail from almost the get go, didn't they? They they did IMAP, mm-hmm. which is awesome, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's like you yep. know, instead, why use Pop? Um, but yeah. and, you know, <laughs> and then IMAP was there, and it's like wow, that's great. And you would think that those, well, maybe they did have lessons learned that were counter to what our where we're coming from, but. I think that um, it's that openness is what can increase adoption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Um, well, I mean, look what happened with uh, with Microsoft's uh, Outlook, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, that was just this week they announced that, right? Yep. Yeah. So now uh, Outlook dot uh, com, formerly I guess Hotmail, um, now they are supporting uh, IMAP. And and the funny thing there is that I guess they're coming to the realization that. Um, not everybody does Exchange Active Sync or, or EAS, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so probably like the to cater to the Mac users. Mm-hmm. You know that right. that this was uh, th- they either would have to use the web client for um, Outlook, or um, but they they really couldn't use IMAP. But now they can use IMAP. So now is this all of a sudden Microsoft? Uh, they're just, it's like they're seeing the light and, and they're being altruistic. They get money from people who license the active sync mm-hmm. technology, right? Yep. Um, yep. But now they're at the point where anyone who's got a platform we're talking about, which is like Android, um, iOS, like they all support active sync. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've already. They licensed kind of, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've already licensed it. Like, so, so Microsoft has already made their money on those, on those tools. Um, and now I, I'm presuming that the goal is to get people more likely to use outlook.com than Google, right. Mm-hmm. Or Gmail or, uh, whatever, Apple, iCloud or whatever. Um, and so in order to do that, you need to 
just like Twitter did in the early days, right? Like make yourself as available as possible to people using it um, and then eventually figure out how to make money off of them. Yeah, but when I saw that article, um, I noticed one of the things that, that, oh, these are all the great things that Outlook.com can do um, is that they they mentioned that TripIt also integrates with Outlook.com without needing filters. Um, so like, you know, you and I use TripIt, right? You mm-hmm. book something yeah. on a website, it goes into, like my case, it goes, uh, it's like I book something on United, I get a confirmation email from United going into my Gmail box, I have a filter set up to automatically forward to plans at TripIt.com, TripIt gets it, builds an itinerary, mails it back to me, pretty cool. But I need to do that for every single vendor I work with. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Marriott, Hilton, all the airlines and all that, to be able to forward it. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, uh, you know, I know what filters are, but for, um, you know, maybe for a lot of the laity, they're not used to filters or it's painful or it's mechanical. And so they came up with a great way to um, make it easier for people by all you have to do is give uh, TripIt access to your mailbox. And so you basically grant Outlook.com or Gmail or, or the providers that they select, um, mm-hmm. you say that, oh, Hey TripIt, um, or hey Google, it's okay for TripIt to uh, read through my email and, and suck out emails that are related to travel things. Um, what what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. And what I thought there was that you know, like a lot of times people, okay, you go ahead and you do that, but what about whenever you, you know, people are talking about, oh well, you know, the government could subpoena Google uh, to compel them to look in your Gmail account. Well, here's another way that you know somebody could po- you know the government can possibly uh, subpoena TripIt to look at your mm-hmm. and to be able to go in and, and look at your Gmail account maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, yeah, and I, had, I well, we were talking about this earlier, and I, I had another thought about that too. Is that if I'm TripIt, right? If I'm the if I'm the chief counsel at TripIt, I am making sure that if somebody has given me permission to go root through their inbox for travel emails. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put some pretty, I will want to put some pretty serious safeguards in place to make sure that I don't accidentally suck up anything I, do, I shouldn't, right? Um, because I don't want to be on the hook for that, right? right. Um, I don't want the bad press, and I don't want the liability of suddenly holding on to somebody's love letters to his girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anyway, that got me thinking about, uh, you know, we talk a lot about data, data privacy and keeping your keeping your, your yourself safe and all the rest of it, and there's... Uh, one thing EU has kind of caught on to this and it's less popular in the United States for a bunch of reasons, but um, rather than uh, thinking about it in terms of the rights of an individual, um, thinking about security, data privacy, all the rest of it in terms of the liability on a company, mm-hmm. right? So if TripIt knows that it is going to be subject to these like massive civil actions, or if they can be like hauled into court by the federal government um, because they've, uh, because they've slurped up, too much out of people's Gmail inboxes, um, they're going to behave a lot differently than if it's than if the consequences are just like, oh, we accidentally violated a hundred million terms of service, right? Yep. Yeah, and then I, I think that to me, like you said, if you're the chief counsel, the smart way to do it would be to, and probably the chief counsel wouldn't think, or hopefully they would think this way, but you would want to make sure the software is written such that it would be impossible to do certain things like whether it's like spider oak where it's like, Oh, well government gives me a letter. Well, you know, the best I could do is give you a binary blob for you to reverse engineer because we don't have the keys. Right. Right. And, and so I think for people to, for companies to be able to write it that way, 
not only is it going to save them from being sued by whether it's the EU or individuals or um, you know the cost of of just processing government requests for data, um, you could say, look, I, I'm not collecting this data, so it's not that useful for me. Or I mean, mm-hmm. it's not going to be it's you know you're not going to be able to help them even if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, this reminds me of uh, <laughs> this reminds me. This makes me think about LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, which seems to have at some point, and maybe I said yes to this and maybe I didn't. Um, at some point they definitely got a hold of my address book. Uh-huh. Um, because I'm seeing, see, you know, whenever you say like, accept a thing on LinkedIn, it gives you a list of like 400,000 people that you might also want to yes. uh, be connected to. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I've seen, and maybe you've seen this too, like suggestions to connect to people who are not on LinkedIn, but for whom I have, uh, but whose email address I have, mm. um, which I think is really interesting. And either they're, they have a super cunning way of figuring out, you know, they're looking at my social graph and figuring out like who I should be connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more likely at one point or another, LinkedIn actually slurped up my address book. Yep. And the other question there is it, was it a one-time slurp or is it like a, and did you give it permission to Gmail or whatever, and it's and you know there's a cron job that once a day right. it, it slurps. Yeah, exactly. So so maybe so I could go into thank thankfully Google has these tools where you can go in and see which applications you've uh, uh, just like Twitter, like it'll give you a list of all the applications that you've authorized mm-hmm. to go log into, right? So I could certainly go through there and check and make sure that you know I haven't given LinkedIn permission. Um, but here's the crazy thing, and this is kind of this is all the discussion around data privacy and the cloud and everything that we talk about on every show. This is what it comes down to. I have literally no idea. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way for me to know how LinkedIn is talking with Google or if they're talking with them at all. Yeah. Or maybe they went to Axiom from the yeah. last episode. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, right. Or, or they went and they looked at um, your Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Because that's, um, that's public information mm-hmm. or the people correct. you're following. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. Um, crazy. Yeah. Look at this world. We, look at this world we live in. Yep. Um, Dave, t- t- uh, I, I need to put my mind at ease. Tell me that it's going to be better in the future. Tell me that there are people working for the improvement of uh, the the developers uh, of the future. Yeah. So I. This is a cool thing. I got a. I saw a tweet from uh, Phil Shapiro, and then there's a, a video series uh, from. Uh, a lady uh, in her series is called the Geek Girl Diaries, so girl with a U, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's pretty cool. So it's basically it's I, I I need to carve some time out and sit down with Lauren, but it's basically like here's a six minute video of how to use Scratch and a Makey Makey to, and marshmallows uh, to play sounds through a Raspberry Pi. Cool. Yeah, cool. and it makes it and so instead of it being like heavy duty computer science class sort of thing, it's sort of like fun. And to me, it's like uh, a lot of the things that Lauren is doing with Scratch and all that, it's cool for her, her to do demos of how Scratch works. But I think people could find it a lot more compelling if you have something like a makey-makey and they could, they could pull a marshmallow out of a, a jar, plug it in, and make it play something, and then eat the marshmallow. You know, mm-hmm. Just from like mm-hmm. a show-and-tell sort of standpoint, I think that would be sure. really compelling to, to help uh, get people excited. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I'm no scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, You're a constitutional I, lawyer. I, I I am a constitutional and a, and a neurobiologist. Um, right. But but I but my experience falls short on electrical engineering, and um, I don't understand the marshmallow thing. 
What does that do? Yeah. So you know what a makey makey is? Mm-hmm, I do. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, so they what you need to do is so or for those that don't know a makey makey is sort of like a well it's an input device. I believe it's USB based, and and you can almost think of it as like a, a USB keyboard with like maybe ten keys on it. Uh, but mm-hmm. there aren't any keys on it, and and instead of keys, you have these like alligator clips, and then you you can clip the alligators to things that will conduct the electricity. So you hold one end of the thing for I guess for like a ground, and then you can connect other things to it. Like I've seen people do it with bananas or pumpkins or things like that that can conduct electricity. And then whenever you touch, so whenever you have the clip clipped onto you, and then you touch a marshmallow that has been clipped to the makey makey, it'll, it'll close a circuit and then send basically a USB key, um, through a, you know, through a pretty much a USB keyboard into the USB port and tell scratch and Hey, the letter a was pressed and, and it would give that input. Super awesome. So you could do like a uh, food based dead man switch. So as long as I am eating this apple, uh, the makey makey will do its job. But as soon as the apple is complete and the circuits broken, um, then it'll go away. Right. Awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. So check out that video series. It's uh, must-see TV. It's really cool. Though even the way she presents it, it's a very fun way for uh, to get girls into uh, STEM and computers and stuff like that. That's great. That's super cool. Um, so speaking of learning, uh, mm-hmm. Dave, I will be honest with you. I have played not even a little bit with the uh, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux um, OpenStack distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and in fact, know very little about it. I, I haven't taken a very close look at it since we, since we launched it. Um, is there a way for me to learn more? Yes, there is. There is Good. a... Yeah, so you missed it. Um, <laughs> on September 24th, <laughs> there was a, a webinar, but the cool thing is that they have these things called the Taste of Training that our, mm-hmm. our training organization runs. And uh, so it's basically actual trainers, the people that do the, the course development and everything, they will, for free, do like a webinar, which is basically a highlight video or just like a, a sampler of one section of a class. Um, and so you can go and you can watch it, and the, and the replays are up there. I'll we'll put the link in the show notes. But they just, they just did one for uh, Red Hat uh, Enterprise Linux OpenStack platform, which is our... OpenStack distribution to show you how to do, install and configure it and all that. Um, but there are other ones that are already there that you can go to right now to learn how to build RPMs, how to um, do IP tables to harden a system, uh, like really cool stuff like that. Totally free. It's all web-based. Uh, something to do this weekend. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yep. Um, let's see. Let's go through the list of events. I am not speaking on October 1st through 3rd at the cloud computing and mobility workshop. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I presume they, they postponed the conference. I, I presume it was like a federal budget thing or a sequestra. I don't know what it was, but um, anyway, I'm off the hook. Yep. So sweet. I can I can stay for, I can temporarily stay stupid on the uh, intersection of cloud and mobility. So I'm but the intersection that. of cloud and mobility is big data. Oh yes. Yes. That sounds good. Doesn't it? Actually, uh, our friend uh, Tom Lee over at the Sunlight Labs is uh, now on a jihad against the uh, term big data. And in fact, was making fun of someone who... Uh, th- so it's not big data anymore, Dave. Okay. It's uh, it's massive data. Because hmm. big data is boring. And, I'm, and, and if you're like me, you're sick of hearing about big data. So it's now massive data. 
Is it software-defined massive data? It's software-defined massive data in the cloud, mobile. Cyber. Cyber. <laughs> Good. Right. I thought we had a fatwa against the word cyber on the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so, so speaking of... Uh, speaking of security, um, you're going to be the uh, semantic thing, right? Yep, yep. Doing a panel with uh, cloud uh, security there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very cool. Um, and then next week, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to this. It should be fun. Um, I get to go to the uh, Gartner IT Expo yeah. um, in Orlando. Um, this mm-hmm. is like a huge show with full of analysts and um, kind of high-level IT industry folks. Um, it's going to be really fun, and uh, I'm actually super flattered uh, that the that the company is sending me as the representative. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, super cool. Um, so I'll be there. I think I'm talking on Monday, um, and then we got a we got a we got a we got a special guest partner uh, speaking on a Wednesday. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you guys I'll tell you guys more about that in the next episode once Ooh. we get all the arrangements finalized. Yeah, cool. Some cliffhanger. Yeah. Yep. And uh, where's Lauren this week? Uh, well, she's at a dance this week. There's a uh, yeah. So they That's had a long dance. Yeah, That's well, a long it was, dance. <laughs> it was homecoming last week, and then there, she's part of the one dance club, so she's doing that tonight. So that's oh, where okay. she is now. But mm-hmm. um, November second, um, you have to check this out. There's uh, the Mini Maker Fair in Akron. Um, yeah, yeah. So they actually wrote an article uh, about her, and uh, it's on the Mini Maker Fair website. So you, you can check that out. Um, they did an, uh, an interview with her on on how. How she got into computers and stuff like that. So, um, and it was funny. Is it, it? She told me it's like, oh yeah, I got this interview published, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and and so it's like I knew that it was going to happen, but it was like it happened, and it's like I didn't even, you know, I, I I was expecting to like proofread something or be on the phone or whatever, and it's like she just sent me the email link of, oh here it is, and I'm just like, oh boy, this is. You know what's she gonna say or whatever, and and it was it turned out really well. I was I was really proud of her. Um, she did good. That's great. That's yeah. great. Proud proud stage dad. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we gotta be careful though, Dave. I mean, Lauren's getting more press than we are. Yep. We gotta we gotta we can't have that. She's gonna get our job soon. She's presented more at the Akron Lug than I have this year. Oof, that's rough. Yeah. That's rough. Um, we can even up the score, though, uh, at the Red Hat Government Symposium on November 6th. Yeah, we'll show her. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah, that's right. Um, so the registration's still open. Um, actually, not for much longer. From what I understand, it's filling up really quickly. Yep. Um, and so I think there's a few slots left. So if you've been hemming and hawing about um, going to the uh, Government Symposium, uh, go jump on it. Go do it now. Yeah, November so you 6th. can go on November 2nd, go from the Mini Maker Fair right to the Government Symposium on the 6th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Road trip. <laughs> Road trip. Cool. Um, let's see. All right. What's what's new at work? Uh, oh yeah, there's this great article on uh, using OpenShift and citizen engagement. And Dave, here's the cool thing: mm-hmm. is I don't think either of us wrote it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we're huge fans of OpenShift. Mm-hmm. Um, Huge fans of citizen engagement and engaging citizen coders and using IT to improve the uh, communication between government and the citizens. Um, and the idea is spreading. Uh, so we've got the, there's this article in a, a outlet called a Future Gov, mm-hmm. uh, who covers uh, covers Asia. Um, and there's a whole write up on how OpenShift is awesome for citizen engagement. It was really cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So not just really us. Cool. Not just us. Not Great. just us. Um, 
And also, congratulations goes out to Dr. David A. Wheeler. Yes. Uh, his thesis. Um, uh, so he's, he's finally published his thesis. Um, and actually put up a video of his thesis defense. Did you see that? Yeah. So, um, yes. And I, I saw that this goes back to, like, I saw an article that um, our security blog did on doing mm-hmm. reproducible builds for Fedora. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big things that people are worried about is that, okay, you know, I just got this RPM or a, a binary, or let's say an executable binary of uh, of a piece of open source code. How do I know that, you know, nothing was, you know, slipped in the middle there? And how do I trust that? Um, right. So it was a pretty cool blog article. You know, go ahead and check it out. And that reminded me of, of like you said, uh, uh, David Wheeler's uh, PhD thesis. And it's like, and, and it's all about um, trusting trust when it comes to software. And and so I was poking around on his website, checking out his thesis and everything. And he actually does have a, a video of him doing his uh, thesis defense, which to me is like, <laughs> you know, that's that's pretty pretty uh, hardcore right it's like not here's only a, here, yeah do you do here's a guy thesis. who loves transparency <laughs> yeah but you do the you do the thesis de- defense and and openness it's like hey i'm gonna put it all out there um and you know because right. i've i've heard all kind of stories of, of people um you know it's it, it could be pretty rough when you do a thesis of uh defense so it's pretty cool to see him uh, put it out there so it was pretty cool yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, briefly the, the, the premise of the thesis or, or kind of the mechanics behind the thesis or um, is so as you say similar to this to this blog post about Fedora is <clears throat> um, basically taking two taking source code compiling it twice using I guess two competing compilers uh, and then figuring out how to compare the results and ensuring that they're not different, mm-hmm. um, which which is a way of exposing. Uh, a compromise in the compiler itself, right? Right. So, like one of, one of like the one of the sneakiest, gnarliest kind of attacks you can make is by breaking the tools that you use to build your software. Um, so the so it's basically like it's a way of like poisoning yourself. Um, yep. So that you know now suddenly if a, if my build system is compromised, um, everything that comes out of the build system could be compromised in some you know, in some meaningful way. And so, yes. uh, it might, it's thesis. or it might not, or it might not, you don't, you know. don't know. Right. And so, so David's work is really interesting, uh, about this. It's, it's ways of kind of exposing that kind of vulnerability. Um, it's really cool, really yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, it's like the matrix, right? You don't know if you're in it or not, or the blue pill or red pill or, you know, <laughs> right. it's, you, you don't know, um, mm-hmm. if you're in the matrix or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, let's see. And then, oh, you know, we haven't mentioned SCAP in a long time. And I know that because my wallet is a little bit light. Yes. Sean hasn't given me 20 bucks in quite some time. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so I will, anyway, you, you found this, so you talk about it. Yeah. So, um, super easy. Um, so if you're looking for a reason to run open SCAP, um, really mm-hmm. cool trick you could do. Um, so if you go to the open SCAP website, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes. It shows you how to run a vulnerability scan on RHEL using Oval and OpenSCAP. So basically the way it works is um, you know, we put all our Oval definitions on our public website right? Mm-hmm. Um, that says that, oh, it's basically it's an XML file that says uh, all of the RPMs that are there, what the, what the CVEs are, and things like that. And then you can basically pump that XML document 
into OpenSCAP and it will scan your system and tell you if you're missing, if your system is vulnerable to particular CVEs. So I thought that was pretty cool. As if it was magic. It was. And I even, I even did it on an unpatched system just to prove that I could get something coming out of it. And then I patched mm-hmm. it and I scanned it again and it was uh, clean as a whistle. Awesome. Awesome. Super cool. Uh, oh, good. I, I was waiting for this one to come up. Okay, so drum roll. Yes. The Docker announcement. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. This is so exciting. Um, so, Dave, you love OpenShift, right? We all do. I love OpenShift. Who we all love, love OpenShift. Open yeah. Everybody loves OpenShift. But now, one of the tricks to a tool like OpenShift is that the interoperability between say OpenShift and another platform is still not great, right? Um, This is not for lack of trying. This is because um, this is relatively early in the idiom, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got a number of different platforms as a service out there, a number of different deployment systems, and we can't agree on a lot of things and having some kind of like portable application packaging is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so like good open source communities, like all good open source communities, um, these guys have, these, these folks at DotCloud and through the Docker project have developed a way of creating, I guess, I don't know how, I don't know the words they use to describe it, but the way patented. I think about it is like <laughs> patented, proprietary patented um, uh, platform independent packaging um, for complex applications. Nice. Um, and so basically what they've done is connected or the ambition is to connect the Docker ecosystem, which is very, very popular and is getting even more popular. I mean, this project is like on fire connecting the Docker ecosystem with the OpenShift ecosystem. Mm. Um, and so, uh, hopefully that will create, you know, uh, this like multiplier effect, um, and really create like a center of gravity, um, for, for work in this area. So uh, this is incredibly cool um really cutting edge stuff if you have not paid attention to openshift or to the docker project now is a really good time to go and read up on both of them Mm. um because this is a really big deal um dave there have been few kind of press announcements um that people will go out of their way to like give me an attaboy on or like thank me for but like people on twitter were were hitting me up and saying um, hey, great job. You know, what a fantastic project. Like, thank you for, and in fact, like thanking us for working together with the Docker project, mm-hmm. uh, just because people are already feeling the pain of these like individual silos and they, they really want to see some kind of harmony and interoperability and portability between these, uh, between these platforms. So this is a great first step. Yeah. And I, I saw like, like even you go to the dot cloud website and it just seems like a, a good group of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Very it's clean, li- clean limbed, and clear eyed. Yeah, and um, very culturally similar to us. Um, it just seems mm-hmm. seems like a good good gang. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, let's see, Australians. Yes. What is this thing about Australians and Australian accents? Tell me more. Yeah. So I'm just lesson learned. If you ever wanted to learn how to speak with an Australian accent, I I got a really good video for you. Um, it, it'll it'll get you going really quickly, um, where they interview Australians and and ask them how how to do an Australian accent. And one of the ones that I thought was interesting is a way uh, I think it was one of the ladies described it was like you know how you have that exercise ball that you sit on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
think of having your tongue just lay across an exercise ball and just let it lay there when you talk. And 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 the other thing that they do or that they don't do is they don't go. Their their voice is very like one volume level. It doesn't go up and down very much like Americans do. That's really true. Yeah. So the, do they give any hints on preventing an Australian accent from dissembling into a New Zealand accent? No. Because that's a, that's a subtlety I still can't. You can't distinguish? I, well, I can distinguish a little bit. Like a, I can occasionally distinguish between the two. Um, but more often than not, I, I, no, I don't think I could. I don't think I could. Yeah. Like for yeah, me, I, I just know enough like Australian to like go to Outback Steakhouse and order, you know. <laughs> That's right. Well, they're so snooty about it at Outback Steakhouse. Like, if you don't walk in with an Australian accent, they're, you know, they're kind of dismissive or, or like, you know, don't visit your table anymore. Really yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. I got a quiz for you, Dave. Yep. You ready? Yep. Which are there more of? A, McDonald's, B, Starbucks, or C, libraries? What, what would you guess? Mmm... I was actually, I, I, I was going to guess Starbucks just because of the, you know, this like running joke of like Starbucks being across the street from Starbucks. Um, or a Starbucks opening inside of a Starbucks. <laughs> right, or Starbucks opening inside of a Starbucks. Um, yeah, exactly. I, th- I think Starbucks. I think Starbucks. Yeah. What about you? I, yeah, and I would have thought that too because it's like they're smaller and, you know, I, if I were to rank them, it would be like, oh, Starbucks, McDonald's, and then libraries. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's libraries. Wow. Mm-hmm. So how many libraries are there? 17,000. Does that number seem low to you? In America. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, that explains And that so, <laughs> so 14,000 McDonald's, mm-hmm. 11,000 Starbucks, 17,000 libraries. I don't know how many are in Australia. <laughs> well, it's funny that now, I'm trying to, now that I hear the number, I'm trying to justify it. And I guess it makes sense because... Uh, especially in rural areas, like super rural areas, like you're you're much more likely Ohio, to get, I guess, right. uh, yeah, like Akron or something. Yeah. Um, you're you're more likely to get a library than you are a McDonald's or a Starbucks, right? Because because each, yeah, each county yeah. or each yeah. township is going to have its own library, you know, if of any size, yes. right? Because um, also you know because also libraries can be of many, you know, there could be many different sized libraries, whereas McDonald's or Starbucks are kind of relatively, you know, relatively uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're not going to see, uh, so you can actually have like a tiny library out in a very rural area, you know, with like no McDonald's or Starbucks for 50 miles in every direction. Yep. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But there's a, a link we'll put in the show notes where you could see, they actually map every library and museum in America and it's all, it's like Google map. You could scroll around. If you don't believe it, you could look in your own neighborhood and, and like I, I confirmed that, oh yeah, there's libraries here, here and here. And they were right. Oh, it's great. Um, actually, that website, Atlantic Cities, I can strongly recommend. Um, it's a kind of an, like a side project of uh, the Atlantic magazine, mm-hmm. um, but it's focused just on cities um, and issues surrounding cities. Um, I guess the premise being that, you know, cities are growing um, and they're being invested in in ways that they weren't 40 years ago. And so, you know, now that cities have, um, are now on the rise, whereas they've been spent most of the post-war period on the wane, um, uh, that uh, that they deserve their own coverage. Cool. Yep. Um, okay, I got another question for you, Dave. Yep. You watch the Flintstones, right? We all do. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you remember Barney Rubble? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did what do what do you suppose he did for a living? I don't know. I I didn't know. Did did do you know? I okay. I got a guess. Okay. And I don't know this for certain, but I'm pretty sure he was a bounty hunter. Bounty hunter. I thought he worked in an office somewhere, but really wasn't sure and all that. But um, but it winds up that um, even like Flintstones fanatics and and um, Flintstones uh, researchers um, can't really uh, um, they don't know they can't agree on an answer on what uh, Barney Rubble did for a living. In, in other news, there are Flintstone enthusiasts and researchers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Professor, uh, yeah, from, uh, Case Western. All right. Um, yeah. So it wound up that um, that there there is uh, from Hanna Barbera's public relations department, Lady uh, Carol Keys, um, and she said that the the most uh, commonly accepted answer is that Barney worked for Fred's employer, Bedrock Quarry and Gravel. Uh, but Carol continued, however. Um, out of 166 half hours from 1960 to 1966, that were there were specific episodic changes from time to time. Um, Barry has uh, Barney has been seen as a repossessor. He's also done top secret work, red flag there, um, and he's also been a geological engineer. Um, and but so there's where he worked, but also his occupation. Um, it was never concretely established either. So you know, even if he worked at the quarry, what did he do there? And that was never really established. Um, and uh, and there were other uh, things that he did, such as um, uh, a, he was a private detective, a photographer, and a short order cook. But the one, the top secret work thing, that that yeah, that's red flag, right? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so either he was a spook um, was or. KGB or a compulsive liar. Mm-hmm. That's the other one. And he's just unemployed. Right. Right. That would be the other way to go. Yep. <sighs> but if All people right. know actually what he did for a living, where, where should they go? Oh, they should go to uh, dgshow.org. Yeah. Uh, that's a D as in Dave, G as in Gunner show.org. Nice. Yep. Um, and that's where you'll find the stuff on the cutting room floor. You'll find links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. Uh, you ready for the, uh, ready for the weekend, Dave? Yes, I am. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, well, I'll talk to you next week. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye everyone. (laughs) 